We'll be starting Second Peter this week, and let's pray as we go to God's Word. Uh, our Father, I ask you to accomplish through this sermon and through this service things which no man can accomplish. We want to be Christians who are firmly rooted, growing in grace. We can scatter the seed, but we can't we can't make it grow. So we ask that you would provide the growth this morning in us. And I ask that you would, by your spirit and your word, implant in us a sense of, of wonder and excitement at the blessings that we enjoy through Christ. Cause all the other offers of joy to, to grow strangely dim, Father. And we pray that you would incite in us contentment and, and just a simple joy in you, the giver of all good things, and that that joy would spill over into the world, and that some who don't know you yet would, would share in our joy. In the name of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Let's stand and read God's Word. First, Second Peter 1, 1 and 2. Simeon Peter a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Tim Keller, in his book on marriage, he says this, I think it's insightful, sociologists argue that in contemporary Western society, the marketplace has become so dominant that the consumer model increasingly characterizes most relationships that historically were covenantal, including marriage. Today, we stay connected to people only as long as they are meeting our particular needs at an acceptable cost to us. When we cease to make a profit, that is, when the relationship appears to require more love and affirmation from us than we are getting back, then we cut our losses. We drop the relationship. This has also been called commodification, a process by which social relationships are reduced to an economic (coughs) exchange of relationship. And so the very idea of covenant is disappearing in our culture. Covenant is therefore a concept increasingly foreign to us, and yet the Bible says it is the essence of marriage. Uh, The reason I read that quote, the reason it sticks out to me in the context of our text this morning, is this whole notion of marriage and relationships which are maintained in a consumer sort of way. To, to meet my needs. Uh, we're told as young people, or at least I was, especially during that dating courtship period and, and into engagement in the early years of marriage, do not look to that person to fulfill all your needs. <laughs> they will fail you. They can't possibly fulfill them all. You will be disappointed. And that is good advice for marriage as well as all relationships, whether it's friends, parents, siblings, uh, the church, pastor, bosses, co-workers. 
It's also true of our possessions or our achievements, you know, our house, our job, job title, education, degrees. So what I see in this text and what I've been trying to apply it to my life this week and what I hope to encourage you with by way of reminder is the pure blessedness of being a Christian. The blessedness of being a Christian. Our spouse or any of these other things I've mentioned are things that can bring benefit to us, great benefit to us. But the benefits of being a Christian find their source in one person who will never fail and who would never disappoint us. So the benefits of being a Christian find their source in one person. That is our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I want to identify three benefits that I see in this text and kind of show how they are, they find their source, how they flow from Christ Himself this morning. And I use that term benefits kind of intentionally as it has a richness of meaning in our history, in our Reformed heritage, and in the confessions. Uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism 36 asks, What are the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? which were previously identified as benefits of effectual calling. The answer, the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification are assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, increase of grace, and perseverance therein to the end. So these blessings, these Benefits, as they're called, which we as Christians have in this life, are abundant blessings. And Peter begins this epistle with three gems, three blessings in these first two verses that I can see. And the first blessing of being a Christian is apostleship. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. We might ask ourselves, how is apostleship broadly a benefit for Christians, isn't it? Doesn't he say, Simeon Peter, an apostle? Why is apostleship a benefit to me? And I want to answer that question. Before I do, I just want to briefly kind of talk about this person, Simeon Peter, as he's called here. Uh, Take a brief detour here. This man, uh, and specifically the authorship of this letter as we start the series. Um, because the authorship is quite disputed in Second Peter, and to me, the fact that it says Simeon Peter is enough. You know, if it's anybody else, it's a lie, and therefore it doesn't belong in the canon. But our our more left-leaning friends might like to uh, call this epistle pseudonymous, which would mean another person took his name, took Simon Peter's name upon himself to maybe lend credence to the letter. Uh, and these, these type of folks would point to something that's true, that this letter was slow to receive adoption into the church, into the canon. It was one of the slower books, along with Revelation. It's one of the least attested letters in our canon. But the fact remains, it did eventually become a part of the canon, as, as you know, at, by Augustine at the latest, it was a part of the canon. These folks would also point to there's a difference between the language of First Peter and Second Peter, which a lot of them wouldn't believe Peter wrote First Peter, so I don't know why that matters. But 
Also, there's thematic items, philosophy, that perhaps a, a Galilean fisherman wouldn't have been aware of, and so they would point to these things. Uh, however, I think this pseudepigrapher, this person adopting Peter's name, if, if that was the case, is really diving deep. He's kind of like an actor, taking on the persona as much as he can. Because Peter, throughout the letter, mentions things from his life, uh, like Jesus' prediction of his death, uh, Peter's presence at the transfiguration, and even possibly the writing of First Peter. He references all these things. And additionally, he uses this very rare transliteration. It's used one other time in the New Testament. Rather than Simon Peter, it's a transliteration of the Hebrew Simeon Peter. So I would think that if you were going to be a phony Peter, you would want to kind of use the most well-known name. All of that to say, I'm operating under the conservative and historical assumption that Peter, the Apostle Peter, wrote this letter. And so back to the kind of main point here. Simon Peter is a servant and apostle of Jesus. And I'm arguing that his apostleship is a benefit to the entire church and to me as an individual, not just to Peter alone. Ephesians, we well know, says that he gave some as apostles to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So this means... Us. This means we are the ones being equipped by the apostleship of Peter and through the ministry of the other apostles. And there's no apostles today. Some would like to say there are. There are only those apostles of Christ. And it's the fruit of their labors by which we are nourished and strengthened uh, through the scriptures and through the New Testament. Jesus charged Peter, as we know, to feed his sheep. And as we sit here in this room today, Peter is still fulfilling that charge as we read this letter of Second Peter this morning. He's feeding the sheep of Christ. I don't know if there's a group or denomination or a sect or a false sect or divergent Christianity or anyone who wouldn't want to claim apostolic authority to their tradition. Uh, some try to, as I said, reinstitute this awful office of apostle. Uh, others, the Roman Catholics, would kind of claim this apostolic succession from Peter on down, this sort of whispering in the ear of one pope to the next, passing on the keys of the kingdom. Apostolic succession. And we too would claim apostolic authority. True apostolic authority is seen in carrying out and preaching the apostolic message. Our apostolic authority is in that faith once for all delivered to the saints. So the apostleship of Peter is, is really truly of utmost benefit to me because it's the testimony of Peter and the other apostles that I know Jesus. It's because of them that I know who Jesus is. The Word became flesh and dwelt really among them. And while I commune with Jesus through the Holy Spirit, I do so primarily in these things He's passed on through the apostles, the word and sacrament. My faith is dependent on the preaching of their word. And without them, I wouldn't have any faith by which to be united to Jesus or commune with Him at all. So that's a blessing. What a blessing to have the apostles. That's a benefit to us as Christians. Now the source, so we looked at the blessing, the source of this benefit we see is Christ himself. 
in this case, I want to kind of draw our attention to Christ in His kingly office, His role as king. The Westminster Larger Catechism asks, How doth Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executeth the office of a king in calling out of the world a people to Himself and giving them officers. And it goes on. Isn't that an interesting thing to say? He's the king and He's appointed officers. You know, a new president takes office, what's one of the first things he does? Elect his cabinet members. Christ is king of the universe, head of the church, and one of his roles as monarch is to set people in roles where he wants them, in offices he wants them to fulfill. Ephesians, again, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. These are offices that Christ the king has instituted for his church. I was thinking this week, we don't often think of the church that way. Maybe we do more than others, but it, the church is personal. It's I do my devotions, and because I'm faithful, I, I then go to church, and I'm an individual, and I sit and I close my eyes and worship God together with these other people, and sometimes they help me along, sometimes I help them along. But the corporateness of the affair is often missing. With this God-ordained structure, this structure, this uh, institution laboring to fulfill a mission given to us by our King, Jesus. So it is Christ, the head of the church, who ordained Peter and who ordained the other apostles to that office. And we have the privilege in the church of honoring that office, of sitting at their feet, of serving under the leadership and guidance of the Apostle Peter as Peter was honored to do as he served under Christ. He calls himself here a servant and apostle of Christ. So my first instinct when I read that servant is he's saying he's an apostle, but he's going to balance it with servant. You know, the servitude, he's not he's an apostle, but he's no better than anyone else, which is true. But I think the truth is more likely that he is proud to be a servant of the king. Deuteronomy, we read of Moses many times, for example, in, in 34, 5. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, there in the land of Moab, died. He's called that the servant of the Lord many times in the Old Testament and in Deuteronomy and through Joshua. And Joshua and, and David are likewise called the servant of the Lord. This is a title of honor, the servant of the Lord. Biblically, it's a title of honor, and it should be. Men find great honor in having served under a military commander that is well adored or a president that's well liked. Or, you know, we might be impressed if, if a person has studied under a great theologian. He studied under R.C. Sproul. What an honor. How much more an honor than lies in the title servant of the Lord, servant of Jesus Christ. Peter is the servant and apostle of a great king, King Jesus, who rules the nations, upholds the universe, and is head over his church. So we are indeed blessed by his office, this office of apostleship, which finds its source in the ordaining hand of King Jesus. So praise the Lord. We praise the Lord this morning that we have a king who orders his kingdom in a way that benefits his people. And we have such a good king. We are indeed blessed.
So the second benefit we see here in this text that I see as Christians is faith. The most basic things to the Christian faith is faith. He says, To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. This this word obtained, it kind of almost gives the connotation that we reach out and grab it. We've got to work for it and obtain, achieve this faith. Uh, other translations use the word received, which is a better translation. It is a, a passive verb. We've received this faith. Faith, as we read in Ephesians, is the gift of God. And he says it's to those who have obtained this faith. This is who Peter writes to. This is his audience. We don't know the exact audience of Second Peter. He does say in chapter 3, verse 1, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. And so this could be a follow-up to First Peter. Uh, it's possible, but we don't know that for sure. Surely Peter wrote more than one letter in his lifetime. Uh, but it's written to those, his audience is those who have a faith of equal standing. So that that's us. We have a faith of equal standing. This letter is, in a sense, right, written to us. Now, what is this faith? Faith, Peter calls it a faith of equal standing with ours. And ours meaning probably the apostles, perhaps the, the rest of the church. Probably the apostles. And it's not unlike Jude, um, which Jude, if you don't, already know this is very much a parallel book to Second Peter. There's a lot of even the same content, especially between chapter 2 and Jude, but Jude calls this faith the faith once for all delivered to the saints. As one commentator pointed out, Jude almost emphasizes the historicity of the faith, this faith that's been passed down from generation to generation. And Peter here emphasizes more the Catholicity of our faith that all of the Christians share in this equal faith because we share an equal object of our faith. Calvin here says, but he calls it like or equally precious. Not that it is equal in all, because, but because all possess by faith the same Christ with his righteousness and the same salvation. Though then the measure is different, and that does not prevent the knowledge of God from being common to all and the fruit which proceeds from it. Thus we have real fellowship with Peter and the apostles. So in other words, we may not all have the same strength of faith, but we have the same object of our faith. Therefore, we share in the same faith of equal standing with Peter and the apostles. We stand on the same plane as the men who stood and watched the transfiguration himself. So this is the second blessing, the benefit of being a Christian in this text that I see, is that we have faith and that our faith is no less important than that of the apostles. You know, we don't have to obtain to some higher form of knowledge or higher form of spirituality. There's no levels of superiority within the Christian faith. We share in one faith, one Lord, and one baptism. And it's amazing, we're just given this faith. It's a free gift, a saving faith, unifying faith, sanctifying faith, a faith which will in the end lead to glorification. 
Faith is the heart of all that we are as Christians. Without it, we're not Christians. And God has just bestowed this on us out of His good pleasure with no merit, no intrinsic beauty in ourselves. That is truly a blessing and a benefit. And once again, this benefit which comes to us comes through Christ. The source of our benefits are from Christ Himself. He says here, it's by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. As as Reformation Christians, we like this idea, the the righteousness of God. And I think our minds immediately go to, to Romans and to Luther. You know, this idea that God's righteousness, in, in His righteousness, He's justifying sinners. Um, which may be what Peter means here, but I think if that's the sense in which Peter uses this word righteousness, it would kind of stand alone in First Peter thematically. Now, Peter uses, or in this letter, he uses that term righteousness a number of times, and it's always kind of in the moral sense of righteousness. Second Peter is very much an epistle focused on righteousness, the righteousness and morality that flows out from our faith. And so in the context of this book as a whole, and especially in the context of talking about an equality of faith, I think he's more talking about moral righteousness or perhaps justice. Justice is another term that can be translated out of that, that word, that Greek word. So perhaps he's saying... In the justice of Christ, he has given equal standing and equal faith to all. So whether we take it in that sense or in the sense that Romans says it, that Paul says in Romans, uh, the source, the blessing that we have, the source finds itself to be in Christ still, who is called here our God and Savior. This is one of the few times that the Bible calls Christ God explicitly. But to be honest, I, uh, we don't need explicit references to Christ as God to know He's God. Pick up any one of the Gospels and it's plain as, as the nose on your faith. Christ is God. And we worship Him as such. He's also our Savior. This deliverer from the wilderness. The one who brought us up out of the house of slavery. The rescuer, that propitiation who covers over divine wrath. He has accomplished salvation by His life, death, resurrection, and ascension. So in that way, His own sacrifice, His sacrifice of Himself, secured for us this faith which He's bestowed upon the saints. In other words, I I see this as His priestly work, His sacrificial work is His priestly work, which we have received the benefit of a faith of equal standing with all the saints. As we see in Hebrews 10, 10 through 12, and by that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. You kind of hear that universality not taken too far, but the universality of his sacrifice, his priestly work, the sacrificial work of Christ, in that work he secured for all of his people a faith and a salvation of equal standing. So he didn't didn't die for the apostles only. 
He didn't die for men and not women or for a specific skin tone. He offered once for all a sacrificial uh, a sacrifice for sin. And thus our faith in that once for all offering is of equal standing with even those of highest ecclesiastical office. So, again, what a joy, what a benefit to just be given grace, to be given faith, that is, by God Himself, a Savior who of His own accord took on Himself the role of sacrificial lamb that we might, together with the whole church, historic, geographic, and future, universal, share in a single faith. That may seem very basic to us. We've heard so many times about faith. I think I, I did a calculation. I can't remember what it was. Now. Over 1,500 sermons that I've personally sat and listened to in my life. We've heard about faith. We've heard about salvation, sacrifice, and Christ, and the family of God, and the deity of Christ. But all of these are the fundamentals of Christianity. If we lose sight of the fundamentals, we fall. And so we praise God for that most foundational of gifts bestowed upon us by Christ, the benefit of faith. And finally, here Peter concludes this little introduction, this opening of his letter, with a fairly standard New Testament blessing to his readers. Verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So the benefit here that we see is grace and peace multiply. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Grace and peace. Again, Christian words. We know what they are. We know what they mean. But do we really know and do we really believe in the blessedness of grace and peace? And grace we could call divine favor, unmerited divine favor. And we Just think about that for a moment or more than a moment. Perhaps go and write a list of all of the divine favor in our lives. And also think, ponder on our own undeservedness and that God bestows it upon us anyways. Or think about peace. Peace within ourselves, peace within relationships, but moreover and most importantly, peace with God, which would lead to the other forms of peace. We are by nature foes of God, angry, rebellious God-haters. Colossians says we're alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And He has reconciled us in Christ's body of flesh by His death to present us as holy and blameless before God. That is grace. That is true peace. We cannot place a price tag on these blessings. And that he would say here, it's amazing to me, he says he wants these blessings to be multiplied to us. Once we become Christians, we don't cease to need grace or peace. We need it to continue in abundance. And Peter wishes these things would increase at an exponential rate, that they would be multiplied. And one thing we'll see as we go through Second Peter, uh, there's a strong emphasis that we grow as Christians that we mature, that we progress. 
couple of examples here. Peter calls the people of God to supplement our faith with this series of virtues in the next few verses in in chapter 1. And at the end of this list of virtues, he says in verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The way he concludes the book is also interesting. He says, Take care that you are not carried away with error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So growth, maturity, steadfastness, all in the face of false teaching, ultimately is the context of Second Peter. These are all central themes of this epistle. And I don't think it's a coincidence here that he uses this term multiplied. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So growth in grace is essential in the Christian life. And as we'll see in the coming weeks, progress in sanctification is an important marker in confirming for us our election, giving us assurance of our election. Now for the third time, we'll look here. We've seen the blessing, this blessing of grace and peace multiplied, and the benefit, and now to its source, again, is God and Christ. In the knowledge of God and of our Lord, of Jesus our Lord. So every river, every stream kind of has its genesis, its starting point. Genuine grace and genuine peace have a starting point. They have a location, a source. And the source of our grace and peace is to be found in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Knowledge is given ultimately through the prophetic ministry of Christ. So I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm loosely following the prophet, priest, and king outline of Christ's work here. This is his prophetic ministry to give us knowledge of himself. Again, Westminster, larger catechism, 43. How does Christ execute the office of a prophet? Christ executed the office of a prophet in his revealing to the church in all ages by his spirit and word and in diverse ways of administration, the whole will of God in all things concerning their edification and salvation. So Jesus, who is the Word of God made flesh, reveals to us all that we know of God and of Himself as Lord. And this knowledge is this knowledge has to be more than just facts or data. I think we are guilty of that sometimes, perhaps especially in our tradition. Sometimes We try to get to know God through just facts and data. You know, after all, theology is the study of God. So take it on like a science, which I agree with. We need to go farther than that. So we we kind of like to assemble all the data points that we can from the Bible and all the data points we can from creation. And we do our best to kind of compile a picture of who God is. And it can be something like studying a solar system, you know, a far-off solar system on another star. And you can look at it with a telescope. You can analyze it through the spectral analysis, right, and, and see what the star is made out of. And But the only interaction we have with it is maybe if we can possibly see a pinprick of light that's traveled from that far away. We can get a picture of what's going on out there, but we don't have much real interaction beyond that. This knowledge here is a personal knowledge. 
Or some suggest that this word Peter uses could be translated as, as come to know, uh, which would imply almost the knowledge that's gained at conversion, that conversion knowledge. But either way, it's this intimate knowledge of God, and it's the source. This type of knowledge is the source of the multiplication of grace and peace in our lives. Now, we live in a world which oftentimes poo-poos knowledge and kind of extols experience, especially when it comes to God and in matters of religion. But knowledge is another one of the major themes that we'll see running through this epistle. And it's through the knowledge of God that we stand steadfast amidst the waves and winds of false doctrine. So we know God. We know God personally as our God, as our covenanting God. We know Jesus as our Lord and our King and our Savior. This is the kind of knowledge which produces steadfastness and contentment and maturity. So it is the self-revelation of Jesus which sustains his people in the blessings of grace and peace. So I, I just want to conclude with this simple exhortation. Know Jesus. Know Jesus. Know him as king. Revere him as the one who orders his kingdom. Know him as priest. Praise him as the one who sacrificed himself once for all, that we could share in a faith commonly delivered once for all to the saints. And know him as prophet. Understand him as he has revealed himself to us. No other person or possession will meet all of our needs. The benefits of Christ are to be found in Christ alone. So know him. Amen.